0: Welcome back to Tomorrow Today, the podcast where we talk about the future of tomorrow. But today, I'm your host, Nash Flynn. I'm joined, as always, by my beloved co-host, Andy of the Poor Poles Almanac. Andy, how are you?
1: You know, I'm the only one that ever gets introduced as of the blah, blah, blah. Why can't I just be Andy?
0: You can, okay, sorry. I'm sorry. And I'm joined, as always, by Andy, the weird dude in my basement.
1: <laughs> That's not better. That's not what I wanted to do.
0: Sorry. Andy. Andy, how are you?
1: i'm good nash how good are you very good okay nash of death and friends thank
0: you <laughs> thank you i'm actually really Nash really of good. the internet of the internet yes i belong to the
1: to the huff post like 10 most popular tweets of the week or something something like that every
0: week baby <laughs>
1: back to back huff post champs
0: <laughs> it's not buzzfeed but it's not close
1: <laughs> but we're here
0: <laughs> we are online Were you going to say something worse? (laughs) No, I was going to
1: make a joke, and then I couldn't think of the right word about... Like, the not professional, the, like... The knockoff? No, like...
0: The University of Phoenix?
1: (laughs) Yes. HuffPost is the University of Phoenix of Of BuzzFeed. Of BuzzFeed. Everyone knows what that means.
0: I understand. Anyone under
1: over 30 knows what that means.
0: Tomorrow today, the podcast that shades just about
1: everything for no reason. Like, why are we drawing the line in the sand here? Sponsored by the University of Phoenix.
0: Get a degree. You filthy animals. In literally
1: anything. (laughs) Doesn't matter. Please give them their money.
0: Give all of us money, including Also us, yes. Yes, give us money. (laughs) Uh, anyway, I'm like losing my mind because this week I got to sit down with the very fantastic Ruth Goodman. Do you know who Ruth Goodman is?
1: I know who Ruth is. I've seen her do terrible things on farms on TV. And by terrible things, I mean things that are... She's like, this is what people used to do. And then, like, tears apart an animal viscerally. And then, like... With her
0: teeth. <laughs> yeah.
1: And then does cool stuff with it. But, you know, at the moment, you're just, like, watching this, like, sweet old lady, like, just tear shit apart.
0: I mean, she's not old.
1: <laughs> no, she's not. She's, like, middle-aged.
0: Yeah, she's older than us. but She's she got saying. a very
1: strong maternal yes. presence. I do
0: want a hug, actually. Um, it's a bummer that she's in the UK and we're in the US. Anyway... To actually introduce her, she's a social and domestic historian in the UK. You'd recognize her from any of the BBC Historic Farm series, which, if you've never seen before, you should stop this podcast and go immediately find. Uh, she's also got a few brilliant books out there, including How to Be a Tutor, How to Be a Victorian, How to Behave Badly in Elizabethan England, and the Domestic Revolution. And you should also read all of those. So stop this podcast and go buy those.
1: All of them. All of them. Read then them come, all at the same time. <laughs> come One back page when you're of ready. each. <laughs>
0: I'm serious. Come back when you're ready. She's incredible. She's an incredible woman. She's an incredible historian. She came to history and history education in a totally different way, which we talk about. So I guess my question to you while we're introing this is when was the last time you churned your own butter?
1: I usually outsource my butter churning, if you know what I mean.
0: Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) no
1: that's what she mean <laughs> anyway so no but seriously churning butter churning butter great skill to have great skill to great have. for the forearms
0: great for the forearms also if you don't want to go the path of owning your own butter churn and using it which i don't know why you would not but um you can just you just take heavy cream you you put it in a what are those things called a stand mixer and you just go until it looks like butter and then you take the butter out and you you have butter. Board. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. It's very, very simple. I don't know why people think it's so hard. I went to pilgrim camp and that's how I learned to make butter. But you, you could just learn it from the internet or from this podcast, actually.
1: Congratulations, you've learned.
0: You've you've actually, congratulations, you've learned how to make butter.
1: Yeah, so Ruth is an interesting character for a number of reasons that we've already brought up that she's a unique, um, she has a unique facet in understanding history, archaeology, living history, which I I think is the part that is really important and a lot more complicated than like when we look at these artifacts as these static things. And she engages with it through her you know, like if you've watched the series, this idea of like living the life and having, you know, instead of it just being this thing on paper of this is how people lived 400 years ago or whatever it was, instead it's how do we actually make this work? Which I, th- you know, it's like trying to rebuild the pyramids. Like we can understand on paper how they probably did it, but there's a lot of stuff that's going to be missing that when you get to a point that it's like, oh, how did they actually do this? And I think that's that's where the the magic happens, right?
0: And not even just how they did it, but how did it feel to live as one of the people that were doing it? How how were their daily lives comprised when they weren't building the pyramids?
1: Yeah, and I don't know why we're focusing on pyramids in this case because she did not she have did. any interest. <laughs> yeah, she's uh, she's uh, never she's, built a pyramid as far as I know. She's an
0: Egyptologist. Um.
1: But the point I think like what's really interesting about her work is that she focuses on like working class people and like. Specifically the most marginalized people in like working class England that are, you know, the women that were, you know, keeping the household going, whose histories have been kind of ignored or, you know, it seems so fundamentally like average novel or not novel that they've become, you know, not worth studying or just like very, like, very like topically studied and understood when obviously it was a lot more complicated. And um, a lot of that agency is brought back through the work she's doing.
0: Right. This is actually, I think, one of the first times, if not the first time, that you and I have actually, sort of, done the prep research for this together. Like that's the, not true, Chris no? Fuchs. Oh, Chris Fuchs. That's just because I was afraid. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I There's like, a little bit of fear in there.
0: <laughs> I am not a science person, so sitting down with science people was like it was. It was my um. What's the big mountain? The Mount Everest. <laughs>
1: What's the big mountain for five <laughs> hundred?
0: The Mount Everest. Clark, as my son says, the Mountain Everest.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, then because I'm never going up there.
0: <laughs> no thanks, Mount Everest. I see you, and I don't want to know you. But but it's true. I think you know we we watched the Farm series years ago, actually, and the two. Of I'm us pretty sure
1: it actually started with you making fun of me for watching the okay. Farm series, okay. That's and then also
0: sounds like it tracks. <laughs> yeah,
1: and then you're like, actually, this is kind of interesting. Is she making butter? Yeah, and then. Thirty six hours later,
0: there. But there's something so warm and genuine about the way Ruth approaches history, and this is this is true. Um, you know, you you watch her do these these things, like the mundane. Like she, in in most of the farm series, she she washes laundry, and it for her. It, there's an enthusiasm and a joy that comes through watching her do something like that. When it, it in you know in reality. <laughs> you couldn't pay me money to take my clothes down to a river and wash them. Like, you could not, there would not be a sum of money.
1: That, no, that you would, he would end- be a nudist immediately. <laughs> yeah.
0: I would just be like, you know what, whatever, life has been not worth living anyway. I'm just laying down. <laughs> I will wear what I'm wearing and then I will die.
1: <laughs> so one of my favorite scenes for Ruth, like when you say like Ruth Goodman, what do you picture? I think of the medieval epi- series where she's so excited that she made a stick floor. Yeah. And she's like, look what I did. I made the stick floor and I made a broom and I can sweep it. And it was just like the the novelty of simplicity in a way that our history probably wouldn't otherwise have without that. Like being in this 3D moment to experience it and have that experience translate into understanding how people do things is uh, really valuable. And I think especially like in in the other work I do around ecology and trying to understand how people have lived historically and like what are the things we can translate to the modern era being able to to just go through those experiences to say huh this is a lot more or less work than i thought or i never it never occurred to me like how to how to create some synergies between different practices that need to you would need to do in your day-to-day life right. and her enthusiasm to do that is really uh, infectious i think right.
0: and i think for me one of the first moments that i really well, not the first but but one of those moments for me for Ruth uh, was watching her get excited about the Victorian stove that comes in, right? Cuz coal sort of changes the Victorian era in its entirety. And when she first moves into the Victorian farmhouse, their their stove is actually broken, right? So it gets replaced and her And she's excited exa- about it. like her like big excitement about the day it gets delivered is like so infectious and genuine and you can't help but even if you were like god I would never live in the Victorian era, which is a valid, valid thought that you should be having. It's so, like, I would love to be there while she's getting this oven delivered just because her excitement is so real and present. And I think in the same series, she's also making ice cream for the first time, and, like, that process also seems really hard. Like, I eat ice cream almost every single day, which I know is gross, but, like, if I had to make it myself, no. Not that way. They didn't have ice, so it was, like...
1: You thought churning butter was hard. Ice butter.
0: Ice butter is harder, yeah.
1: Churning butter in the Arctic.
0: But she's so delighted to do it and go through the practice, and even when it doesn't turn out the way she wants. And I do think that there's an aspect of this in the whole Farm series, and not just for her, but also for the for the other two archaeologists on our show, uh, Peter Ginn and Alex Langlands. You know, they, they approach things, you know, very genuinely, and sometimes they fail and things don't go the way they want. But... They still enjoy it and they're still for them a very big learning experience from it even when it doesn't go on camera the way it should
1: yeah and I think that vulnerability like really shines through in the series and I, I think also like I, I haven't read much of her written work, but I imagine that her just from the little bit that I have seen that comfortableness with her lack of academic background I think comes really uh, comfortably through that's like something you can appreciate because it doesn't feel so standoffish, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, and I think that's that's a movement that's happening in history in general. You'll find that a lot of more popular histories right now are written not for academic peers, but for people who don't normally participate in a historical discourse. But I do think that when Ruth writes, and this is is true of most of her books, if not all of her books, I don't think that I've read um, the newest one, but she writes exactly how she talks. And so you can read her book after listening to her talk just on something and be like, I can hear you saying this to me, which is a true talent. Actually, it's very, very difficult to write how you talk. Um, and it also makes things feel so more, much more comfortable, much more intimate in a way that I think history has really, really lacked to this point.
1: Yeah. And there's, I think it's also worth pointing out before we wrap this up that there's a difference between like pop history and what we're talking about where pop history is engaging people almost like in a polemical way whereas ruth is engaging like is going through the dirty meandering of history without getting caught up in like these like gotcha moments of like let's talk about this fun fact like a weird like you know YouTube video that's like three minutes like all the top five dogs and like all you know like that kind of crap like
0: this isn't 10 facts about Henry VIII that will blow your tits clean off like this is or clean on or clean on (laughs) depending on where you are (laughs) this is very much this is history but for people who don't read stuffy academic history like this is history of the people for the people by the people wow sorry
1: (laughs) should i are we going marching after this like what's going on
0: i said i was sorry i heard it as soon as i said it um but it is true you You heard
1: that but you didn't hear churning butter
0: no i heard it i just chose to ignore it okay but i think you know our our love fest of ruth is probably due to end now so that she can actually talk um is there anything else you want to add before we let her for agency.
1: Yeah, I guess we can do that. If you listen to this and you're a fan of Ruth before, I would also recommend the Purple's Almanac. It had Alex Langlands on. So I just wanted to plug that really quick. We talk about ecology and landscape uh, restoration. So if you are a big fan of the Tudor series, the wartime farm series, all that good stuff, go check that out too.
0: And uh, Peter Ginn, if you're listening, uh, anytime, buddy, you just you just name your day.
1: Yeah, you're next. <laughs> you're next.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today, Ruth. Um, so I want to start uh, with this question that I think. Is one of the more interesting things about you. So you came to history and historical education in a different way than most people, I think. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that may have influenced your path to social and domestic history?
2: I married into it, <laughs> um. <laughs> we were very young. <laughs> Um, And my husband had been interested in in, um, historical reenactment since he was 12. Wow. And when I first heard about it, I thought, you know, I sort of heard the stories rather like you might hear your partner had been in the scouts or something. (laughs) I I didn't really take a huge amount of notice. And then a scant four weeks after we got married, and as I say, we were married very young, um, he said, come on then, off we go. What? (laughs) You want me to do what? What? I beg your pardon, what? And so it started there, really. Uh, when we arrived at the first sort of thing we went to, I mean, I was very dubious about the idea of reenacting battles. And to be honest, I still am. Uh, I, I worry about the glorification of war, um, that it's not a terribly honest thing to do, um, that it's also something that is very oddly political with a small p Mm. this glorification of conflict and war and um yeah it still worries me actually it's it's not something i feel terribly comfortable with however the people can be great they're really an eclectic mix of some really nice people and very quickly we sort of segued away Um, from the military sort of idea into the idea of living history. And that absolutely touched a button for me, almost instantaneously. I found myself wanting to find out more about ordinary people and the way ordinary people do things and what they believed and how they felt. And I just wanted to know, it was more like being an anthropologist than anything else. What was it like to be a human being in that skin, in that society, in that time and place? And the more I found out, the, just, the deeper it drew me. Uh, uh, so it starts as a hobby. Not, I don't have an academic background. Um, and it's just a hobby that I followed sort of on my own, really, having my own interests. And that gives you a certain freedom rather than having to follow a, an established course. I could research the things that I was interested in and take it wherever it led. And I think the very first things I really got frustrated with was the lack of information about ordinary women's lives, Mm. particularly women's lives, and particularly ordinary. I I mean, feminist history, this is back in the 1980s. I mean, you know, I mean, dinosaurs still roamed the earth. I'm old. (laughs) But in the 80s, you know, there was lots of sort of what you might call feminist history. But to me, it didn't really feel very feminine. It all seemed to be like men and the, you know, women and the law, women and the church, women and unpaid work it all sounded like women and the man's world yeah and, and there was next to nothing and there still is next to nothing about the ordinary business of being a human being and of an ordinary woman's lives it seems to me for example that housework has been the central craft for womankind for centuries so where are the books written about that right. where are they Who's writing about that sort of thing? Um, you know, and, and looking for that, I mean, the very first thing I wanted to know was how do people do the washing up? Nothing. Libraries, empty. Book cut shops, empty. There's nothing on the shelves. Nobody else seemed interested in what I consider to be the routine, the domestic, the ordinary, the business of living, how we stay alive as human beings. And, yeah, it's it's fascinated me from the first and still does.
0: It is, it is really fascinating. It is, it's funny. Um, so... My family hasn't been in the States for very long, but I grew up in Plymouth, Massachusetts. So it's it's very, you know, ingrained in that part of my my childhood. Um, And as a child, I went to pilgrim camp because that was sort of something that everybody does, which no one outside of Plymouth, Massachusetts ever does. But I learned to churn butter as a child. And I remember realizing as an adult that no one knows how butter gets made. And that blew me away. I I was like, what do you mean you don't know that butter is just cream that you just whip until it's butter. Uh, so I mean, you know, it was an interesting way to grow up for sure. And I think it it has a lot of things that people don't understand. So butter is one of the things I know how to do, but basically nothing else. So in the pandemic, I was very, very popular. It was like, do you want to know how to make your own butter?
2: <laughs> I know we have that problem as a family, because obviously, I, you know, I started this sort of journey into history with my husband. And then later on, when we had you know, offspring, it, you know, it, it became very much a family affair and, and remains so. And so all of us have these sorts of, just like you with the churning of the butter, mm. we have a lot of those sorts of practical experiences and it's, you, you just don't know that other people don't know it. Right. It just, you take it utterly for granted that the whole world knows what you're on about. And they just give you these blank looks. You go, Oh, oh, it's another one of those, is it? <laughs> <laughs> it happens a lot. Yes, yes,
0: it does. <laughs> but it's, it's funny at Pilgrim camp, you, you, you get this ideology, sorry, excuse me, like an identity. Um, and they give it to you at the beginning of Pilgrim Camp and you, you live it out for the rest of Pilgrim Camp. But I I was Hannah, I was 12, I was the primary butter turner in the family, and then I died like about halfway through Pilgrim Camp which was not like <laughs> integral at all to understanding Puritan society, I feel like. So my character just sort of like hung out in the background with everyone else. They were like, you're dead. You're not allowed to like interact. Yeah,
2: yeah, but you know, infant mortality is not important either. It is.
0: It is. But I was kind of like, my parents paid money for this. So I guess, you know, I got to live as a ghost for a week, <laughs> which was interesting. So I do want to jump back a little bit to something you said um, about the histories of, of regular people. So, I do think it's interesting for folks who don't engage with history that much that people would choose to study and write about regular people, right? Because we get so focused in school on the dates, the names, the big pe- people that change cultural or historical yeah. significance. So yeah. why do you think it's important for us to study those regular lives?
2: Yeah, well, well, let's be careful. The big people who changed historical and cultural significance, who says so? I'd like to make this really big point here. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it's... um. OK, let's take it backwards. Like, uh, if you had to say who was perhaps in all of history one of the most important, influential, long-term military and uh, sort of like world leaders, you might choose somebody mm-hmm. like, I don't know, Napoleon. Yeah? Yeah. Big figure. Yeah? Everybody's heard of him with big impact. But if, looking back with hindsight, blah de blah blah we were to compare how much he's changed the world in comparison to the British habit of drinking tea. <laughs> yeah, you see, you're thinking it through. Yeah. And that's regular people. You see, it, it, we are told that it's these historic figures who change the world. I'm not that convinced. I think, you know, I think they're a bit like, you know, when you, you, you make a big stew mm-hmm. and the scum rises to the top. Yeah. <laughs> I sort of feel a bit like that. It's
0: the stew that matters. <laughs> right you skim off the other stuff and you toss it Not in the,
2: garbage. The, at the top yeah <laughs> and I, I but i mean we live in a society um globally in which these elite people are held up as being somehow better more important than the rest of us and that's drilled into us from childhood from every direction but remember history has been written by those elite men's brothers, sons, great-nephews. They were the ones who wrote the history. They were the relative. they're writing their own family history. Traditionally, until very recently, almost all history was simply the family history of the rich. It doesn't, you know, and that has skewed our whole understanding of what is important and what is not important and what history is. And, I, you know, those of us who perhaps don't come from those backgrounds, we have to scream and shout very loudly and wave a lot of flags to get noticed at all. And I would just like to put it out there. The tea drinking has had more impact than Napoleon. So what are you doing now, the way you live as an ordinary, regular person that is shaping the world? Mm. Loads. And, and that's, that's what I think, you know, history ought to be about us.
0: That's fascinating. No, 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 that's... Sorry, little rant, right? Yeah, that's wonderful. And actually, it's going to have me jump ahead and ask you my next question because um, I think it's, you know, in this podcast, we talk a lot about what the future looks like in in all of our respective fields. And so I want to talk about a little bit about what you think the future of of daily people looks like, especially now that we've sort of moved into this very modern, very internet-driven global society. Do you think we're impacting each other that way or do you think maybe we'll lose sort of our interest in the social media and come back to more of a, a a local sort of structure.
2: Well, I think the edge of social media has already worn off, hasn't it? I don't right. think it's ever going to go away again. It's here to stay with us, I think. But the, the deep enthusiasm and almost evangelical belief in it all mm-hmm. has already shaded off. You know, that's starting to come back to sort of more levels of sensible reality. You see that a lot happening with new things come in, people get very enthusiastic, they embrace it whole scale. You know, you get a few Luddites (laughs) who won't play, me for example, I'm I'm a terrible Luddite. But in general, you know, such people are bold, you know, it it happens again and again and again. And then after that initial enthusiasm, people start to spot the problems Mm. with whatever the new thing is. And a more nuanced, more sort of blended approach takes over in the long term. We saw the same emotional and uh, intellectual responses to things like the railways um, (laughs) when they first came in. I mean, you know, if you were to read a lot of the letter writing about the first printing presses, you'll find so many of the same sort of trajectories and things going on. I, I think it's a normal process. Yeah.
0: I mean, when spiritualism first came out, we were all into talking to the dead, and I, I don't know anybody that talks to the dead very routinely now.
2: Yeah. And then it's sort of <laughs> like, yeah, calms down again. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, nobody knows what the future will bring. I, I and, and certainly, you know, there's mm. no way we're going to go back. There's no point in going back. And there's no benefit in going back, partly because I mean, again, if we think about the way people live, the way you live when there are a thousand people in a in a in a place the size of Britain is not going to be the same as the way you live when there are ten thousand people. It's not going to be the same as the way you live when there are hundred thousand. It's not going to be the same as when you have a million. You have to adapt as the population rises. You need different things. Britain is thought. Um, i mean we're small i think we're this what i don't know in comparison to the united states it's it's so tiny as a geographical area i mean it's smaller than any one of your states isn't it um but when when um before there was agriculture hunter gatherers we think that only between five and ten thousand people lived in britain that's all yeah i mean it's small but even so imagine the whole of britain now which has its I don't know, we're on 35, how many million are we on now? I don't know, that's 60 or 70, uh, you know, a few thousand people. But because they were scattered out, they didn't need to worry about things like latrines, didn't yeah. matter. Yeah. The way you behave and the way you behave in the resources is one thing. Once you've got a settled population, then just going everywhere in the woods, is no longer possible. And you've got to start having things like latrines and organised supply. And that works great mm. when you're at village densities. And then you start having urban centres grow and you have cities grow and then people have to change their behaviour. They have to do things differently. And obviously, if we're going to talk drains, then you have to have drains. But it changes your behaviour on everything else, how you behave. to strain, You can't acknowledge everybody you walk past in a city. You go nuts. You can't know everybody's name. You've got to know a new, find a new way of being with all these new people. And as the population density rises. We've had to reinvent the way we live many, 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 many times over. We can't go back. You know, you can't go back. We would all start. Or get cholera, you know? Um, <laughs> you know. Or get cholera, or whatever. You know, it's just not feasible to try and sort of turn the clock back. But that, you know, that's, these things, they don't go away. But we find a new way of living. We, we reconstruct a new system as each new sort of thing comes in, we reinvent what it is to be a society. Yeah.
0: That's a I'm good I'm actually thing. sort of struck by that too, because we we recently reached the 8 billion people mark in in the on the planet Earth, which terrifies me in a lot of ways because it seems like there's too many of us. Um, but at the same time, you know, I wonder, you know, maybe there's... One million people that are famous that we would you know give that that category to that are rich wealthy and then the rest of us are all just participating in this sort of regular everyman daily life and I think we forget that the 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 numerics are tipped in our favor in a lot of ways absolutely so you know I'm thinking in terms of you know revolution and some of the things that I think we we maybe need to start addressing you know our Elon Musk problems our total financial Inequity. You know, we, we have the advantage of having way more people on our side participating in this sort of daily life multitude down here. And, and to your point about, you know, tea drinking changing more of history than Napoleon, I think maybe we should think about that a little bit more, you know, mindfully in that we have those numbers. We have the ability to change history. We just maybe don't realize it as a collective yet.
2: And I think that's partly about starting to question hmm. what is history What is the movement of people and the movement of ideas and and what does it mean? I I think history is really quite important politically, with a small p. I don't mean in sort of modern, you know. What I think really what history tells us is that everything changes, Mm. constantly changes. That there is no such thing as we've always done it like that. It's not true. It doesn't matter what you look at. We have not always done it like that. As soon as you start looking in detail, it turns out we've done it many, 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 many different ways in almost every aspect from the wearing of glasses to, <laughs> to you know, the uh, teaching of children. I mean, we have tried so many systems so in the past and it has changed so often. And what that tells us, of course, is, well, you know, don't worry about it. Right. But it's going to change again. Change is the only constant and they, I think that's a very empowering uh, message. Just because you don't like something doesn't mean you're stuck with it. It can be hard to make things change, but they're going to change anyway. So you might just as well get on board and make it change the way you want it to change. Right.
0: And that, that sort of brings me into my next point, because I'm going to talk a little bit about, about the pandemic that we have all just experienced collectively as a as a globe. So since 2020, uh, the BBC Farm series that you've done have been a lot on my mind for what I think are really obvious reasons. Um, so I know that your work has led you to adopt some of these like less modern domestic tips and tricks in general. Um, are there any that came more handy than others while we lived through quarantine? And what, in your opinion, are the most important skills that, that tutors, Victorians, Elizabethan Englanders had that we lack right now?
2: Mm, it, it, I always get asked this and it's a really difficult one because I think many of the lessons are quite sort of airy fairy in a way. I think it's, what i really value from a, a sort of a living in the past is more control if you have to make everything at some point or other you understand it in a way if you have to sort of you have to sort of if you live without you have to sort of deconstruct what is it i want what i said i don't want what are you're, you making much more informed choices they're active choices you're not just going with the flow i value that more than anything so it And it turns up in many ways. I mean, cleaning products. Once you've had to, you know, live in the past without said modern cleaning products, the first question you ask is, yeah, but I'm managing fine. So why the hell am I still buying this rubbish? I'm really not needing it. So why am I buying it? I mean, what is it? What does it do when it says on the packet that it's a bathroom cleaner? Yeah, but but what's in it? What am I putting all over my bathroom? I'd like to know, please. I'd like to be able to make the choice and not just which brand am I going to buy? I want to know Mm -hmm. what am I spreading around the place and exposing myself and my family to? And indeed, what am I flushing down into the environment? I want to know about it. And I think it's more that sort of attitude of mind that I've really drawn from the past than anything else. Because people in the past did have to make those sorts of decisions all the time. They couldn't rely on the advertising, I suppose, to sort of, channel them and shape them and i've very much noticed that modern people do modern people are utterly led by what they're seeing that they're not really consciously thinking about it i think most of us are unconsciously being shepherded through life by a series of advertising messages and and it's really rather nice to have that taken away and to start asking your own questions becoming more in charge of what you do and don't do and it's not perhaps the sort of answers you wanted. Everybody asks me that question. And, and as I say, almost every journalist I ever speak to asks me that question. And what they want are fabulous I'm not little, a journalist, so I'm surprised. Uh, yeah, it's very much, it's, there's two questions I get asked. That's one of them. And the other one is, so what part of history would you want to live in? And obviously the answer is now. <laughs> I mean, honestly, have they ever tried living without a washing machine? Um <laughs> Just for a couple months, and it was—it's bad, isn't it? It's really bad. Yeah, yeah. I think washing machine. People often try and tell me that the pill is that is the, is the innovation that gives women's liberation. I'm not sure I believe it. I think it's the washing machine.
0: <laughs> those people did not have small children that poop through like those onesies it's every ten magic. seconds. <laughs> Live- no, thank you. Yep. I will do it for like one washcloth, and then I will be like, okay, the yep. rest are going in the washing Shut
2: machine. Yes, plug me into that machine. Thank God for washing yep. machines. <laughs> the most important. Although, I suppose our, on the different, our, our answers, <laughs> yeah, our answers
0: may be different if we were men. I, I suppose because we wouldn't have to worry about whether we had a washing machine. No, or not. we could
2: just palm outsource that to somebody else. Yes, which is traditionally what blokes men have, have done. always
0: had washing machines
2: in some form yeah but if you've ever been stuck with it anyway but i mean i do use some practices from the past for example my washing machine i don't put any powder in it or indeed anything else i just run it on water because i quickly discovered when i was doing tudor laundry in streams that that just bashing your clothes in water works remarkably well it's extremely efficient you put you know and of course that's what a washing machine does it just sort of soaks and bashes your clothes unless you've got something super greasy, in which case you might, you know, use a bit of some sort of form of detergent or soap to sort of cut that. But I mean, super greasy, most ordinary living dirt just washes out in water. And then you can feel smug, yeah. you know, you've just saved a load of money not buying yeah. all those products. And, uh, and you've also done less pollution to the atmosphere, you know, to the particularly to the waterways. So it's double smug, marvelous. <laughs>
0: yeah, okay. History letting you feel better yeah, than your your yeah. neighbours. Oh, the
2: other thing I'm in mean, at the time when I first tried that, I was living in a very hard water area. I'm sure it must have the same in different areas over there. But some areas in Britain we have a lot of mm-hmm. lime in the water and some areas we have very little. And I was living in an area with a lot of lime. So one's clothes can become really stiff. Ah uh, but not yeah. if you don't use the soap. It turns out that much ah. of that soapness is a react chemical reaction between the lime and the soap. So if you take the soap out, you've got so therefore, well, you don't need the fabric softeners either. That's
0: fantastic. Double smart.
2: I know. It's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> it's just like, yeah, and? Okay. I'll go with this. This seems to work. You know, so there are things like that that, that do move over into my modern life. Mm-hmm. Certainly a great appreciation of washing machines. Yeah. And uh, I really like central heating too. <laughs> I can tell you. I love central heating. Yeah. Britain is not the hottest of places. <laughs> I live in New England, we have so it's like... a summer that generally lasts you know. about two weeks. Yeah. You know, the rest of the time, it's cold.
0: It's pretty cold here, too. We, unfortunately, are wood stove driven, which is great in the one room that the wood stove is in and less good in the rest yeah. of the
2: rooms. Yeah, yeah. It's so, a different yeah. way of living, isn't it? Yes. And then, we, you know, all the wood has to get
0: cut. So you don't have heat if you don't do the work, which is, you know...
2: yeah. It's, it's, it's a different way of living yeah. so yeah and there are you know I mean I certainly during the pandemic was very pleased to have access to a garden thank god I was mm. so lucky to have access to a garden I did a lot of gardening but then I did that beforehand anyway I'm, I've always been a gardener I was brought up in a family in which gardening was a thing so I'm not sure if that was even taught to me by history but it was just more of a family tradition
0: Oh that's really cool. yeah, we mm. we started gardening a lot more during the pandemic simply because we had more time. Yeah. you know nobody was really driving more. time, the yeah, more. exactly, but yeah, I, I suppose we were we were just trying to achieve that beforehand, but not quite getting there because of of the timing aspect.
2: I think sometimes that's it that some of those things that people have sort of like had bumbling along in the background were really brought to a much more prominence mm-hmm. in our lives, and then they've they've begun to sort of slide back out right. slightly. Mm-hmm. But it don't think it did us any harm, did it, to be oh. reminded that some of those old practices have value?
0: Right, and and a lot more people started leaning on those. We have a lot more neighbors now that have livestock than ever before.
2: Yeah, and it's good, isn't it, in a sense to sort of like recharge our skill batteries mm-hmm. as a society. In that there may be, as you say, you're unusual of your age to know how to make your own butter. Good for you, <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> my daughter can make butter too. <laughs> She's a very fine dairy maid. Quite a lot of us sort of revisited a number of skills. I mean, we also saw an upsurge in things like mm-hmm. people doing sewing and handcrafting projects. And, you know, people's skill level might not have been very, people increased their skill level. And even if it now fades away again, that knowledge has sort of like been pulled through another generation. Right. That's useful. And, and I think a lot
0: of, of us living modernly, especially some of the younger generations, lost a lot of that ancestral knowledge you know that really died with our grandparents mm. in a lot of ways um, and so now we're sort of rediscovering it via the internet or via you know elder people that are still in our lives and I think the pandemic yeah. sort of let us discover those things which was
2: exactly it gave people a space to rediscover mm-hmm. and a new context so that it didn't just feel like old people's stuff right. so that it felt like it had a relevance to the new and to the modern mm-hmm. which of course it does you know I would very much like I, I'm one of the things that I'm watching fade out of British society is understanding of fire. I think you've got a different picture in the States. I think you've still mm-hmm. got a lot of people with a lot of room yeah. to be quite free with fire, to, have, you know, to be, have regular interaction with it. But it's pretty much been stamped out of normal experience in Britain. We're so cramped in and close together that you know, there aren't very many places where you can light a fire. I mean, in many areas it's completely illegal to even have a fire in your garden hmm. because people worry about smoke and so forth and part of that is sensible regulation but a lot of it is actually because they know so little about fire they're frightened of it yeah so people push through extra extra rigid no we can't we can't oh it'd be terrible it'd be terrible there might be smoke oh my god we're all gonna die of burning (laughs) you know and when people do have a little bit of fire they've got no experience whatsoever so then they are dangerous seriously dangerous one of the problems with fire that we had during the pandemic was the number of barbecues that actually burnt down several houses in london yeah people had no experience they just didn't know the basics of fire safety um i find that worrying that we've got a population is so ignorant about the basics um and they make some silly choices as a result
0: yeah i mean in, in truth like what what could you possibly know about fire you know, that's in our news cycle, it's basically that California is on fire all the time. So it, it does, I think, in a mm. way seem more scary than than maybe it would if we didn't have a 24 hour global news cycle. Right. I mean, maybe we wouldn't have yeah. lost that knowledge in the UK yeah. so much if we didn't think California was literally burning all the time on un- like uncontrollably. Exactly.
2: Exactly. And without personal experience, people, you know, they just take all that stuff at face value. Mm without really being able to temper it and put it within its own context and you know that very much is an issue and you and and again there's a lot of historical ways of living that are like that 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 like you're saying about with livestock Mm -hmm. how much interaction people have with chickens or whatever it informs how you behave about other things how you think about your life, mm-hmm. but also it informs things like the legislature. What sorts of rules are going to be brought in? If you've got people who have no personal experience of it, you're not going to get sensible laws, are you? Right.
0: Yeah. It's um, it's interesting. So so in the state that I'm in, I'm not sure about the rest of the states, but we have we have certain towns that have the ability to farm and certain towns that don't. So we live in we live in a farm town. Um, so we have chickens, we have sheep, we have ducks. Um, but just a couple towns over they don't have any ability to do that at all so you have to rely on either neighbors that live in towns that farms are legal or you have to use a grocery store and i imagine that was a little scarier Mm. when grocery stores were sort of unreliable or they seemed dangerous if you had you know pre-existing conditions
2: yeah there can be lots of things i mean i i also i also i heard to my i was doing another interview with somebody not very long ago in in the states and i was very shocked. They were asking me about laundry. And I was very shocked to discover that in some areas it's illegal to dry your laundry outdoors. And that, I, I can't tell you how much that, that shocked me. <laughs> I didn't know um, that either. That uh, you know, the idea that one can't use the natural ultraviolet light to sterilize your laundry is <laughs> its just <laughs> shocking. You know, and you worry about, like, people's health, don't you? I mean... <laughs> outdoor drying is just so hygienic it's so safe Uh, (laughs) and and of course it does no harm whatsoever to the environment it's you know it's like it's much better than running a machine to dry your clothes
0: is it is it like solely like a
2: like a nobody can see Uh, your knickers
0: outside (laughs) like is that is
2: the children (laughs) i have no idea what the thinking was i was I, i i i didn't really know what to say (laughs)
0: <laughs> it's it's funny though. Like this is true. The United States is so big, and so like the the rules change everywhere that I don't know any of the laws in other states. And I'm always surprised to find things like this because I, to be honest with you, I've never even asked if it's legal in Massachusetts. But I've never thought that it might be illegal. No, anymore. well, I
2: haven't either. It was it was a bit of a shock. I suppose I should probably ask before I yeah, do my laundry next. Yeah. Where do you do your laundry? Yes. Yeah,
0: I, that's a wild to me. Oh my god. I'm like, I'm literally going to start Googling that when we're done talking, like what state is illegal to put out your, right, your laundry? Laundry in Somewhere down
2: s- south, safety. if I remember, but I can't um, can't remember which state it was. So I, I do want to circle back just
0: a little bit to to our um, conversation about, you know, getting things over the pandemic and, and adopting some of those skills. Um, and one of the things that I keep being struck by, I think, is, is thinking about the Victorian era and how you know, in in Victorian times, I think they had started to move forward in all these places in industry. You know, everything was like, oh my gosh, it's a new market. We're starting all of these companies and these easier ways to do things. And then we found out over time that a lot of those things tended to be very, very poisonous, you know, in our medicines, in our house paint, uh, in the toilet systems. And, and I'm wondering if we're gonna start seeing a lot more of that happening now in modern times with all of these modern conveniences. And even now we're finding, you know, more and more microplastics in our food and in our water systems. I mean, it's
2: inevitable, isn't it? Nobody ever tests for everything. No matter how conscientious people are when they come up with a new idea, you can't test for everything on the long term. I mean, some of these things have taken decades to appear as issues. That's always, again, going to be part of the process of making mistakes. One does one's best, one hopes, except from the companies that don't, who lie and cheat and right. you know um, hide yeah. all the evidence because they can make money. And I don't think that's going to change either, is it? There are going to be liars and cheats forever, really. Right. Our, mm-hmm. our, our mission always is to sort of try and be the people who try and see clearly. And it's not easy to see clearly, to to question things, to look at different angles, to be open to the idea that just because everybody says so doesn't mean it's true. We need a population in which large numbers of us do that. We need to be a more Mm. sort of vigilant species keeping an eye on ourselves really you know we we, we need that we always have done it to to some degree and we need it more than ever because there's more people moving in more directions it's an ongoing problem not something confined to the past not something of some sort of you know oh my god the world's going to hell in a handcart sort of it, it's, it's a continuity, right. isn't it? There have always been bad people and stupid people and misled people and, you know, people who do things with the best intentions but get it wrong. We also know the people who find out. We keep talking very general terms, and I suspect you want lots of specifics, but these are the lessons of history. We are human beings. We have certain drives and urges, and those are always there. And it, there is no fixed way of dealing with this. There is no fixed pattern. It's always changing and evolving and at any person, wherever they are in history, all you can do is live your best life and do what you can with the problems that face you now. I'm sorry, it sounds so very vague and philosophical, <laughs> but then you keep asking me philosophy questions. I'm <laughs>
0: uh, oh, sorry. Okay, so what would you tell people who are starting to learn how to do their own butter or wash their own laundry? I mean, I guess we, we're just, we're using our washing machines, but just no soap.
2: <laughs> I, you know, I do think, my husband calls it critical thinking. Uh, it's important <laughs> it's about you know the past is useful if you think about it it's absolutely a straight mm-hmm. jacket if you just follow it it can be most terrible deadening yeah. thing if you just do as you're told and follow the line I'm, we've always done it like this i'm going to carry on doing it it's dreadful you, one needs to be the sort of person who looks at the past as well as you look at the present and say that's useful that's a load of rubbish (laughs) (laughs) I don't think this why that are you sure but then that's also (laughs) some of the pleasure involved of being somebody who enjoys history that's why I find it so pleasurable that why how does that match up with are you sure it's it's detective work you know at its most basic it is Mm -hmm. trying to work things out from clues and from, you know, some of it may seem set in stone, but it isn't really when you start looking closer. It's all much more sort of, oh, yeah, if, when, but, maybe in this case, but not in that case. It's all much more subtle and complex. And that makes it intriguing, um, exciting, and, and, and an intellectual challenge. You know, the past can be fun.
0: I mean, if you think about like how you would describe a story in modern times, like even how we describe the news, like all of our news channels, for better or for worse, have different ways of describing the same event and all of our people that attend that event have the same thing. And applying that, I think, to how we understand history and understanding that there's not one major narrative, one major truth, but all of the little pieces of that, I think help people sort of grapple this this idea that history isn't boring. It's not names and dates of Napoleon's battles. It's... How the modern people changed the world by drinking
2: tea. Exactly, and it, it's it's also that you know, well, there's lots of things there. if you if you do something, and one of the farm series we did was um, the in the wartime 19 you know 1930s 1940s, and that brought up a whole different behaviour in people you were dealing with because one gets an awful lot of no, it's not that's not what it was like I remember it was like this we did this yeah you did mm-hmm. but not them over there. <laughs> and uh, he he did something differently. He has a different experience, and, and but people tend to think that their experience is the only one true holy experience. That mm. because I did it like this, this is the way to see it and the method through. And we all feel like that, you know. Even if we're sort of aware, some, you know, some of us are a bit more aware of it than others. But even if you've got that <laughs> in your head, you still can't help yourself. We all see it like that's my truth of the past. And it's, it's a really difficult thing to wrestle with how many truths there are. And, and certainly when you're dealing with things that within living memory, you really get that right in your face. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> People tell you straight away, right? First, close and personal and and remembering that as you look at any period of history when there aren't you know perhaps further back when there aren't people to shout at you and say but i remember it differently oh, did that make did that
0: make wartime farm slightly more difficult or challenging than some of the other series
2: uh, it made it different i mean in some ways you see it's yeah. it's you know it is fabulous in the sense that um, it makes it very easy to gather different evidence but it can mm. also be difficult to manage. Yeah, it's, it, it's different, yeah. it's different. You see, I'm researching any historical period can be different like that. And like When I first, Tudor is my first love and I'm much, mm. much more knowledgeable on that late Elizabethan sort of era than I am on any other era. And there's not a huge amount of information from that period, there's, there's reasonable, but it's not vast. If you then move to say the Victorian, then the amount of published information is just overwhelming. And it, you, you find yourself needing completely different skills. In one area, you might be like, you know, sort of like looking under a microscope at, in a sense, at a small piece of evidence and trying to pick, pack, match it with a tiny little fragment here and a little sort of echo over there. That's one set of skills. Within the Victorian, you've got this massive library sort of like falling on top of you. And your skill is simply to sort of like survive the beating. Um, and find a way through it you know like I've got to edit and mm-hmm. select so which bit am I going to look at you know and that's a completely different mm-hmm. set of skills and like as when you wove into the 20th century once you start to get f- a lot of film and um, personal experience and, and different sorts of evidence again you've got to learn different ways of filtering it of, of managing it of of finding meaning within it and of course historians of the future are going to struggle really with this new digital age how is the information spread and how real is it and how relevant is it or how you know I mean it's very easy for example to see something on a on a social media site and it's got like two million clicks or something and think that that therefore Mm -hmm. is an important thought it might just be a cat video it should be a cat video I think (laughs) it should be a cat video let's be honest it's what the internet is for is for cat videos but you know people are going to have to Be aware of those sorts of issues Mm. and be very careful about how they select what are, you know, the loudest, the brightest, the best presented is not necessarily the truth. And, you know, yeah, different skills. Yeah. Uh,
0: So my my last question, and I know we chatted a little bit about this before we started recording, but are we ever going to get a new installment of the Farm Series? And can I petition for like a 1980s, like rural Britain? 1980s.
2: 1980s. There wasn't much left of rural by 1980s. I can assure you. <laughs> I guess that's fair. So it would be very short. <laughs> no, well, probably not. I mean, the last one we filmed was well about a decade ago now. Um, and uh, fashions in telly change, don't they? One is constantly at the behest of whatever somebody who commissions programs thinks will 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 fly. Right. It's very open to cycles of fashion and interpretation and it's very subjective uh, so i yeah and people like me have absolutely no say whatsoever we, we, we just do as we're told <laughs> <laughs> we can ask our listeners
0: um if not the farm series then then victorian pharmacy because i do think we should use some more more knowledge of how to apply you know herbs and also probably cocaine and arsenic back into our medicine supplies
2: <laughs> arsenic's terribly handy you know
0: <laughs> all sorts of things with arsenic. i can only imagine you know <laughs> We really, it really has lost favor, I think, since, you know, the embalming of, you know, the 19th century. A
2: few few high profile murder cases on that useful (laughs) substance whisked away. (laughs) But it is effective. (laughs) (laughs) So
0: if you do want someone dead, that's pretty much the way to go.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Not that I'm advocating. No, 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 no. Of course not. Of course not.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. Where can people find you if they're looking for more of you?
2: Oh, God, I don't know. I haven't written books. Google, (laughs) yes, read
0: all of your books because they're absolutely fantastic. (laughs) Thank
2: you so much. Thank you so much. Take care.